Hi, everyone. I'm Rena Ninen. We couldn't wait until next season to drop this special International Women's Day episode of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production from Foreign Policy. Today, we want to focus on one thing that's actually improved since the COVID-19 pandemic, women's digital inclusion. And that means women's access to stuff like smartphones and mobile banking, things that make a difference to make payments, earn a living, access information online, and save. Coming up, you'll hear from Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief, Ravi Agrawal, who moderated discussions with some of the smartest thinkers about women's economic power, including two heads of major banks in Africa. But first, we want to introduce you to Ritika Kunvar-Chohan. She's a member of a large informal workers' union in India that we've profiled here before. It's called SEVA, the Self-Employed Women's Association. For the past few years, SEVA, with the help of the World Bank, has embarked on an ambitious campaign to provide digital literacy training to 500,000-plus members. The campaign also helps women get digital bank accounts. Here's Ritika. Namaste. My name is Ritika Kaumar Chauhan. I belong to Gamda Bamanya village, Dongarpur, Rajasthan, and am a member of SEVA since 2014. I belong to the Rajput community. Here, women are not encouraged to step out of the four walls of the house. So my in-laws had a lot of reservations when I joined SEVA. But I explained to my mother-in-law that I don't want to sit idle at home. I wanted to do something constructive to supplement the income of her family. I participated in the Leelawati Digital Skills Training. I first understood what this training was about and I was told that it would enable me to do everything simply with the help of my phone. But ironically, I didn't have a phone. The only phone in our household was owned by my husband. He used to operate it and I used to simply observe him. But after attending the Leelawati Digital Skills Training, I was pleasantly surprised at the multiple features and uses of the smartphone. I was keen to share my learnings from this training with the other sisters of my community to enable them become independent and include them in the world of digital finance. I then purchased a smartphone from my own earnings and started providing the Leelawati DFI training to the sisters of my village. The training has been transformational for me also. Today, I have my own home-based apparel micro-enterprise. I now promote my products on WhatsApp groups, accept payments digitally, carry out online fund transfers to my vendors, and lots more. Not only this, I also help my grassroots sisters to open bank accounts and link their accounts to their Aadhaar cards. And they genuinely appreciate my efforts to make them digitally, financially savvy. I only studied till 10th grade in high school. But after my husband saw how well I used the smartphone, thanks to the Leelawati DFI training, my husband encouraged me to complete my education. 
today i am proud to share that i am a graduate in fact my child tells me mummy you have become so independent and confident after going to the leelavati dfi training in short today there is no work that i cannot do thank you namaste Our thanks to Seva member Ritika Kunwar Chauhan for sharing her story. So how do we make sure more women like Ritika get access to digital financial tools? Well, this was a central focus of a series of side panel discussions led by Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief Ravi Agarwal at this year's World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. It's worth noting that this conversation was organized by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which helps fund this podcast. Later on we'll hear from the heads of two major banks in Africa about gender inclusion. But first, we're going to play a conversation that Ravi had with Mary Ellen Iskandarian, president and CEO of Women's World Banking, and Mark Sussman, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So we're here for what I think is going to be the most exciting discussion and event uh, at WEF. You know, one of the strange things about Davos this year and in fact every year is that the issues of gender and women are chronically underdiscussed. The word gender or woman or women was not mentioned once in the the agenda statement. Um one number I saw today suggested that of the 2600 odd delegates inside the Congress Center of the course of the week, 2000 are men. So we have a, a tennis to three men to women ratio, which really is unacceptable. And what we're here to discuss today is pathways towards women's empowerment, pathways for women to be more seen in the financial sector, to have better access, to have better economic outcomes. So let's go, Mary Ellen. I'll begin with you. What are areas of progress that you've seen uh, in the last year, in the last two years, in the areas of women's financial inclusion? And I want to lead with that because we always lead with doom and gloom. But cheer us up first. No, there's actually a lot to be cheered up by. Um, as everyone in this audience knows, the COVID and the post-pandemic period were really difficult for women. We saw unheard of rates of violence against women. We saw you know real backsliding in terms of child marriage girls education but women's financial inclusion was a bit of a, a bright light and that was largely driven by in most cases digital government to person payments government relief payments that were made um, by governments to their their population you had a an unheard of number of people coming into the financial system for the first time in order to receive those payments in india alone for example they made their first round of relief payments only payable to women and in a matter of weeks you had close to 25 million new bank accounts opened in order to facilitate those those payments so a lot of very exciting news there the global fintex which is our our database that we all live and and die for and was delayed for a year showed us when it was released this past june that 250 million additional women had come into the financial system since the last study was done. So enormous progress. The absolutely unbudgeable 9% gender gap had come down to 6%. So some really good news there. But 
I can't resist just putting in a little bit of a cautionary tale there, because um, I think one thing is, is actually very exciting and really what this room is about and what I'm excited to hear about my, my colleagues and CEOs of banks, that we now have these people in the system. Now we have to keep them there. We have to design products that are relevant to their lives, that make sense, that deal with their, their problems. And the cautionary part is that India, again, was very proud of having narrowed their gender gap in financial access quite substantially. But if you dig under those numbers, you found that yes, a lot of bank accounts were opened, but the gender gap was closed because a lot of men closed their accounts. They no longer saw those accounts as relevant to their lives. And I really worry that if we don't do the same, if we don't really stay relevant and focused as a global financial sector, women are gonna do the same thing in a few years. Wow, I have so many follow-up questions, um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna circle back um, because I do wanna spend some time on the Global South specifically, uh, but Mark, let me bring you in. For better or worse, you became CEO a month before the pandemic began, right? Or, or at least a month before it took off. So your vantage point from, you know, of what you do is, is so marked in a sense by you know, all these disruptions around the world. Just give us a sense of what you've seen, pros and cons in terms of women's inclusion in, in the financial sector as it was sort of impacted by the pandemic. Uh, well, thanks. It, it is true I became CEO at the beginning of February 2020, and we had just had the first uh, cases in, in China. Actually, the first grant I announced was around support to China and Africa to prepare for COVID. But it was not actually my first action as CEO. My first action as CEO was to create the Bill and Melinda Gates Gender Equality Division. Uh, which did not exist before then. Uh, for those of you who've tracked us, uh, we have been working increasingly on uh, women, starting with women's health issues and family planning and maternal child health and moving into areas of women's economic empowerment and uh, other related things. But it had been an incremental process, bits and pieces of it, and, but it became clearer and clearer across all of our work, as is represented in the Sustainable Development Goals and other things, but you simply cannot have transformative change in any of the areas we prioritize as a philanthropy unless you put transformational gender equality front and center. You can't meet poverty reduction goals. You can't meet health goals. You can't meet agricultural productivity goals unless you have a clear and deliberate focus on gender uh, because that is just necessary. And so based on that learning, we created the Gender Equality Division and then came into the COVID crisis, which as we just heard from Ariel, was in the immediate term an era of significant setbacks for many women. But the biggest silver lining uh, of the pandemic was showing the power of digital connectivity and digital financial services and the ability to put down the rails that would give more access to your poor people across the world, we've seen that that linkage between women's economic empowerment writ large is really a story about how to give women economic power. And giving women economic power requires actually using these platforms and guardrails and examples we've showed, and we've got lots of pilot models. It's always another one of those fields that's filled with successful pilots, but not necessarily achievement at scale. And we've seen very successful work in South Asia in particular, where we've worked with uh, women's self-help groups, 
women's empowerment collectives in places like Uttar Pradesh and Bihar in the uh, two largest states in India by population. And so it's been a sort of balance of we were already committed to the gender equality and putting women's economic empowerment as a central plank of gender equality. But the pandemic actually both highlighted and uh, reinforced why this is not just important, but frankly, a necessity. And for all the challenges and setbacks, it showed there is a transformative potential to do much more. And frankly, it's why you know, if Davos were really focusing on what matters, this would actually be the formal opening session tomorrow, because it's the most relevant of all topics. For, for us, it is. For us, it is. Well, I, I'm pretty sure for all of us here, this is the opening session at, at Davos. So thank you for that. Um, you know, it strikes me that states in India like Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, and you know, in those two states in particular, for example, Literacy rates for women are under 60%. Access to banking is much harder for them, say, than it would be for a woman in New Delhi or Mumbai. This might be the toughest question uh, of the day. You've heard all of these problems. Some of them are giant national issues that take decades to fix. Literacy, for example. Some of them seem to me that are, are more tackleable by private sector uh, or by organizations such as yours. Give us a sense of when you look at this grand scope of problems, where do you direct your energies? Uh, how best do you aim for change in these areas? Yeah, well, that is exactly the question we want to sort of pose to the experts to help us, help guide us. While we're a very large philanthropy and can do some things at scale, they're not remotely at the scale that you're talking about to actually reach the you know, hundreds of thousands and millions of people uh, and women that we need to transform the economies. And so we can be catalysts, we can be enablers, we can be gap fillers, we can help test and buy new models like the ones Mary Ellen talked about. We can work with financial institutions like the ones you're about to hear from about ways and models to think about better targeting credit towards women entrepreneurs or uh, related issues. Even with some of those bigger social issues, you talked about the literacy issue, you know, that obviously is a huge challenge and there's a wider issue, but there are models uh, that are already working successfully, again, some of the ones from these uh, self-help groups in India that actually surmount some of the literacy barriers through the collective uh, communities where they actually then engage uh, collectively on both savings groups, but access a range of government services and other partnerships. We're also literally working on sort of pilot models that can work with feature phones on natural language that might allow you to do banking so that literacy wouldn't be a barrier even for very poor women. So Mary Ellen, I'm going to close with you and put you on the spot to answer the question about your three action items for 2023. My top three? This is so hard and you gave me two years? Oh my goodness. One of the things that I'm just been so excited over the last five years is we've been training um, policy regulators, uh, uh, regulators and other policymakers, um, ostensibly in leadership and diversity, we bring a senior regulator um, at sort of the deputy central bank governor level, and then a high potential woman that works at least tangentially or adjacent to him. And they do a whole range of classroom training, but then they also work on a policy initiative that will drive greater women's financial inclusion in their country. 
And this year, for the first time, we're actually going to be working on implementing some of those initiatives. After the break, more from our special side panel discussions that took place this January at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Two heads of major banks in Africa weigh in on the changes they've made to include more women in the financial system. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to our special International Women's Day bonus edition of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. I'm Rena Ninen. We're listening in on side panel discussions held at the World Economic Forum this past January and moderated by Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief, Ravi Agrawal. For our next conversation, Ravi is joined by Dr. Diane Karusisi, CEO of the Bank of Kigali, and Abu Bakar Suleiman, Managing Director and CEO of Sterling Bank Nigeria. The topic, African women's access to banking. Let me now bring in Diane and Abu Bakar. Diane, I'll start with you. You're CEO of the Bank of Kigali. It has always struck me for you know, banks around the world that when you have purely from a business economic sense, when you have so many people who are unbanked, that is bad business. Um, you've put in place what I'm told is a quote-unquote gender-responsive policy. Tell us a little bit about that. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm so happy uh, to be here at the opening of, of what? <laughs> uh, so so I, I'll talk a bit about Rwanda, which I believe is uh, very, very particular, because I don't think most people here in the room know that uh, from the Global Gender Gap Report, uh, Rwanda has one of the smallest gender gaps in the, in the world which I believe is quite remarkable. So I'll it talk a bit sixth, about that. Is that right? Six, we, we rank six. You know, only five countries have a, a, a better uh, gap than us. So I'll talk about that and, and the context. So first of all, there's the historical context. Uh, for anyone who knows the history of our country, we've gone through decades of exclusion of a certain people. And this culminated in a, into a genocide in 94, 1994 that claimed the lives of a million people. So if there's anything we understand is that exclusion is actually very dangerous. So that's one. We also have a very special leader who is, we we call him our he for she, who really wants to put gender at the center of everything we do. And we've seen numerous um, reforms, policy, legal, all the way from the Constitution uh, to make sure women have their voices heard uh, everywhere. This is great, and and we've learned that uh, exclusion, one, is dangerous, but leadership is extremely important if we want to change anything. And and, you know, this is my my personal inspiration. Uh, As a woman who's leading the largest commercial bank in Rwanda, I think it's my responsibility to have benefited for all these things that have been put in place by political leaders. And when I look at the report, the, the report from the World Economic Forum, Rwanda ranks very well when it comes to political empowerment, but not so well when it comes to economic empowerment and opportunities. And there's something I can do about it. I, I, you know, for me, it becomes 
beyond a, a responsibility, it's a calling. I have to do something. Uh, so, so, you know, I find myself in a position where I can do something, and we've done a number of things. We work, we've worked with, uh, you know, the Gates Foundation uh, on, you know, women farmers. Uh, but what I, th I think is, uh, you know, quite remarkable is that we've designed products for various segments of women. So something I want to say is that in Africa, and, and I'm sure Abubakar agrees with me, we have more women who choose to be self-employed than men, more women than men. And I don't think this is an intentional choice. It's just because of lack of opportunity, maybe lack of formal um, uh, education and lack of network for them to get uh, uh, jobs in the formal economy. So they find that themselves self-employed. So this is where we come in as bankers uh, to segment them because you really need to understand the, the kind of businesses they do. Uh, we have a special group of women who work um, at, at the borders with other countries and they do a lot of informal cross-border trade. So for these kind of segments, you really have to design the right products because it's not like a, a woman who's trading in the city. It's not the same as a woman in, in farming. It's not the same as a woman who is uh, working in a cooperative for handicrafts. It's different. So we, you really have to come with uh, you know, products that address the needs of these people. Can you, can you give us an example of what such a product might look like? So, so for women in, in, uh, that are involved in informal cross-border trade, so we, we, we designed a small product that does not require them to bring a collateral because it's a big hurdle for women. It's a, it's a small loan. Uh, you know, it can go all the way to $1,000, which is actually quite small. It does not require them to get a collateral, and, and you know, they would come to me and say, you mean I can sign a loan agreement without my husband or my partner knowing? So this, this was you know, one of, of the revelations for these women. And you need to give them flexible ways to pay. They want to be able to pay on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, and you, you need to give them that transparency and, and that flexibility. So, so this is something that has worked very well for them. But again, you know, we, I remember launching this product a few months uh, before COVID, it was a boom, you know. We had all these women coming, opening accounts, savings accounts, to have access to these loans. But then COVID hit, and the borders were closed. And, you know, it became the, the, the less uh, performing product in my loan book. And I had to explain this to my board, which was not an easy thing. So, so this, this, we really have to look at specific segments, what are the right products for them. And I believe there's just so much to do in that space. And uh, when I talk about it, I just get too excited. <laughs> what I want to pick up on is the smartphone issue. You know, I've known for years now, and I've seen this in mostly in South Asia, where you know people cannot read or write, but they're able to speak to their phones, let's say in Bengali or Hindi or Urdu or name your language. And the phone allows them to be a part of the digital world. We've heard for years now that this will revolutionize banking. Can you give us a sense, um, you know, from the Nigerian context now, how much of a change does mobile banking uh, make for people who cannot read or write or who have been cut off so far? Well, thank you. Um, first, um, the issue, the, the problem you've highlighted I'd like to think of that as the last mile problem that mobile banking will solve for. At this point, it hasn't yet solved the real banking problem as I see it. It has solved the payment problem. In Nigeria, for instance, when I started banking, um, 
the average payment takes 14 days. I issue you a check, I'm gonna wait 14 to 30 days. Now if I make, a, if I initiate a payment and I don't get it in five seconds, I'm gonna to start to look really angry. In Nigeria today, you actually will be upset if you make a payment and you don't get it in 10, 15 seconds. Right, so that's the kind of transformation. And it's meant that the payment system today handle far more payments than the GDP of the country. Right, so we've got that figured out. We've got payments figured out. But payment is not banking. Payment is not financial inclusion. Because if it is not changing the economic circumstances of the people, then I don't think we've done much. And we've been asking ourselves, what was missing out? The barriers to women inclusion are usually physical or cultural. A lot can be done about the cultural barriers, but it takes time. But when it comes to the physical barrier, we can do something now. Here's a good example. Women going to school is a physical barrier. People think about education as women leaving the home and going to school. We now have the capabilities to take education into the home. Therefore, that barrier can disappear. We're currently working as a bank on a system where we are using entertainment in local languages to take the academic curriculum for primary school and convert it to something that can be consumed in the home. Immediately, you don't have to go to school to learn to read and write. What we're doing is bringing the education into the home. Same is also true of work. Historically, to work, you have to leave the home. We recognize that culturally, it takes a lot of time for people to be allowed to leave the home. But we can bring the job into the houses now. right? So what are the things today that you can bring straight into the home and women can contribute? And in many cases, these are higher earning jobs than the jobs that they would have had to do outside. So if I'm going to go back into bringing the last mile people who cannot read or write, I need to put the economic value in that mobile phone first. I need it to be that there is a reason for them to go there, not just because they can now make a payment. Because if you don't earn, making a payment doesn't change your life. That is my take on, on the mobile revolution. It has to create value. Well, Dion, that's a great question uh, that Abu just posed. Um, how do you build in equality into policymaking from day one? What do you think of the hurdles there? If you had to sort of, you know, if you could speak to a range of leaders at the African Union, what would you tell them about the hurdles that confront this kind of remaking that is needed? So, so I'll, I'll you know, give you an example. Um, in Rwanda, and you know, we've worked uh, in the agricultural sector, we, we set up a digital system where uh, people can register if you have a farm uh, and you, you are able to order the, the inputs you need for your farm. And you know, there's a subsidy system and government you know, gets you the, the inputs you will need. So what we see is that, uh, you know, of course, you have a lot of education, and it has to be door by door to tell people for you to get access to these inputs. You first have to register. And it's very easy, and you, know, you ha really have to teach these people how to do this step by step. So then you get the people to actually register. But that's not the end of it. After they've registered, they need to know that you know, when the season starts, they need to order the inputs, and when they get it, uh, they need to go and pick them you know, at an agri-business place, at the center of the village. They need to actually travel there and to get uh, these uh, agro-inputs uh, picked. So then you find there's another hurdle. And you understand some people will tell you, it's very far. There's no way I can get to there. I don't have the money to get there. So all these things have to be redesigned. And you facilitate the people to get access to what they need. And, and, and these inputs, for instance, will improve uh, their yields, will improve their livelihoods, et cetera. 
So you really need to look at step by step. You, you know, when you design a product, you, you, you break it down into small parts. And at every part, you understand, is there a problem uh, for women in particular to get access to a, the, the product? And then you can, you can design you know, with, uh, with uh, many stakeholders. We work with the government. We work with uh, you know, philanthropies. How do we make sure at every step uh, we are able to bridge the gap and make sure that even women, even if they have you know, babies, even if they live uh, you know, 15 kilometers for the pick-up point, they still are able to get, or you just distribute them to, 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 to these inputs to them. So it's not an easy thing. And uh, as an ecosystem, you, you, we keep uh, you know, it's incremental changes to make sure at every step you bridge a gap. And eventually, you see actually you know, people understanding, utilizing what they have, and, and improving their livelihood. So for, for me, it's really looking at uh, particular segments, uh, redesigning the model to make sure everyone uh, can have access, in particular women. I have to say, I just love how you're thinking. I mean, you're thinking of very specific problems that real human beings could face. And you're looking at how to tailor something that would build trust for them. Uh, I really applaud you for that. Abu Bakr, um, a lot of times when we think of Africa, we imagine an incredibly fast-growing population. And Nigeria sort of is number one in, in that category because it has you know, more than 200 million people right now. The population is expected to more than triple by the end of this century. Um, Nigeria will then become the third most populous country in the world by the end of this century. Do you see that as an opportunity? Do you see that as a growth rate that a bank like yours cannot keep up with? You know, because this is Nigeria's front and center of the debate of the demographic dividend versus the demographic disaster. So specifically when it comes to women's inclusion in the financial sector, how do you see that population boom, which is coming very soon, already underway, how do you see that playing out? The world needs the population, and they don't need to have them physical, physically present in the countries where their services are going to be required. That's one of the findings of COVID, right? I can be in Nigeria and provide very valuable services to a lot of countries that are aging today. So it is clear to me that the opportunity exists, and it doesn't have to create an immigration problem in the process. What is missing is our ability to first and foremost take education and take it into the home so that both women and men, but especially women, can receive the skill sets that they need so that they can participate in the global value chain without even leaving their home, let alone leaving their country. How do we get the jobs into the home? So things like electricity, access to electricity and access to the internet is becoming critical in solving that problem. So in the average home today, if I can get them this training, if I can get in electricity, if I can connect them to the internet, they can easily be earning a good living. This needs to happen for Nigeria. Nigeria is not gonna be able to train its population using a traditional educational system. I think the world needs to understand, um, there's a very important comment you made, which is exclusion inevitably leads to disasters any form of exclusion. It's not just the gender exclusion. No part of the world can be excluded from prosperity and would expect it to end well, especially not women. So for me, it is a great opportunity. We need help, but we're not waiting. We are going to train these millions of people and make them useful, not just to Nigerians, but to the rest of the world.
I have learned so much um, from our four panelists. My mind is buzzing with ideas. And, you know, it is, this really is our opening uh, to WEF because we're filling a gap in this year's WEF agenda. Uh, the word gender or woman or women was not mentioned once in the, the agenda statement. Um, so I'm really grateful that we have this forum and this discussion. Thank you to the Gates Foundation, to Microsoft here for hosting us, for creating a forum for this discussion. Our side panel discussion on women's economic empowerment was moderated by Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief, Ravi Agrawal. The conversations took place at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland this past January. Thanks again to our participants, Mary Ellen Iskandarian, President and CEO of Women's World Banking, and Mark Sussman, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Dr. Diane Karusisi, CEO of the Bank of Kigali, and Abu Bakar Suleiman, Managing Director and CEO of Sterling Bank Nigeria. And that's our special bonus episode of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. I'm Rena Ninen. Laura Rosbrow Tellum is our senior producer, Rob Sachs, our managing director. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Rosie Julin, Maria Jimena Aragon, Claudia Tady, and Dan Efron. Our show is a production of Foreign Policy and is made possible through funding in part from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, we hope you'll subscribe and write us a review. It really helps us spread the word about what we're doing. We hope to be back in your feed with a new season in early summer. Take care and happy International Women's Day.